Okay, our text is Nahum chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Nahum chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, and I will uh, next week preach from Nahum both in the morning and the evening, and probably one more time before the end of the year after that sometime, but uh, uh, with Thanksgiving and, and Christmas, we kind of change the messages a little bit for those seasons, but <clears throat> I do want to finish the book of Nahum before the next millennium. Okay. All right. And speaking on noises of destruction. The wife was driving home from one of her business trips in northern Arizona. It's a long, lonely road, and she saw an elderly Navajo woman that was walking on the side of the road and she thought, you know what, I ought to pick her up, that poor lady walking by herself like that, and maybe she has a long way to go, and I don't have anybody to talk to, it's a long stretch, maybe I'll just pick her up. So she stopped, offered her a ride, and the old lady kind of nodded at her and smiled and got in the car. Well, she thought, you know, it's a long trip, so I'm going to try to make conversation with her, but as she would speak to the older lady, she would not really say much at all. She just sat silently looking out side at the oh, at all the scenery and the things, taking in every little detail. But finally she did look down and saw that little white paper bag on the seat beside her, and she said, What is that? And of course the lady said, Well, that that's a box of candy. I got it for my husband. And they keep driving, and the old lady doesn't really say much. And finally, that Navajo lady, in the wisdom of being an elder, said, You got a good trade. <laughs> Some of you explain it to your husbands. Ladies, I do come out on your side every once in a while, don't I? Okay. All right. Nahum chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. The noise of a whip and the noise of the rattling of the wheels and of the prancing horses and of the jumping chariots. The horseman lifteth up both the bright sword and the glittering spear. And there is a multitude of slain and a great number of carcasses. And there is none end of their corpses. They stumble upon their corpses. Now shall we pray. Father, as we seek to make your word clear, I can't do it, but you can, and I pray that you would do that. Lord, help us to have our attention now solely on your word and the message you have for us in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. As you read, and like Jeremiah or Ezekiel or some of the other prophets, Joel and whoever else, those minor prophets that are there besides the major prophets, We'll see that many times they're looking at a present kingdom that is quite wicked and they're nearing the judgment of God and these prophets are warning them. And yet as you read those books you see also that they seem to jump the years of time and, and they look to the end and they show us things about the tribulation. And so the books have both a primary application for the present and a secondary application, looking into the future. Now, I think of two passages in the Bible. One that I believe looks at the, these days here before the rapture. 
in another one that looks during the tribulation period. One in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Yea, and all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall, not might, not could, shall suffer persecution. Now, persecution, so often we've thought of it as just being some kind of a physical thing. But many times it's castigation, it's separation, it's uh, various things that are done to you that are not necessarily of a physical nature, but still it's an attack for your faith, your standards, and standing on the Word of God. And so, uh, he says there that all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. You see, the old devil is a deceiver. And that's what he tries to do. And I believe that the days before the rapture, you'll see that. However, I think as we look beyond that, uh, some of these prophets looked at the destruction of the days uh, before, uh, during, should I say, and before the return of Christ to earth near the end of the tribulation. In Revelation chapter 9, verses 20 and 21, he says this, And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they would not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk. Neither repented they of their murders, nor their sorceries, nor their fornication nor their thefts. And I believe that that is something that is really magnified in the tribulation period. So as we look to our text this evening, I want you to see, first of all, the cause of the noise. And we're looking at the noise both present and future. Nineveh will hear the chariots of the enemy running up and down through their streets. In, in verse 2, we hear the noise of the whip. Now, some of you maybe have been to a rodeo or somewhere else, and you would hear them cracking that whip, and boy, it'd make a sound that would echo. And it's, uh, it gets your attention. It's also scary if it's coming at you, okay? But uh, that, that sound, the crack of the whip, is like a, something that would strike fear in your heart. Well, the noise of the whip, that noise is heard by the people of Nineveh. And they will fear because it's coming and nothing hinders the coming. It's there. And it makes them vividly aware that the enemy is present and the enemy has nothing to stop them. It will be as the remnant of the Jews at the end of the tribulation when the armies of the world are, are coming together there to Israel. And as they go through that great valley of Megiddo, and they are coming closer and closer, there's a great noise, a noise and the fanfare of the tanks and the other things as they travel near. They're unhindered as they drive towards their destination. Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 31, the question is asked, and what will you do? in the end thereof. It's a rhetorical question. It means there's nothing you can do. And many people, just like Nineveh was faced with that, many people will be standing at that great white throne one day and there's nothing they can do. It's too late. 
The second thing we see is the noise of the rattling of the wheels. Historians tell us that Nineveh's destruction includes uh, soldiers and chariots that were running through the streets. And the sound of it just really brought stark terror to the Ninevites. Because they're hearing the noise that is preceding their destruction. How much more will that be in that future day when the houses are rifled and the women are ravished? Zechariah chapter 14 verse 2, speaking of that day at the end of the tribulation when the uh, armies are surrounding Jerusalem and it says, For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished, and half of the city shall go forth into captivity. And the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. War does not change things in this modern era of time. And in the Arm at the Battle of Armageddon, it'll be as vicious and depraved as ever. The Zechariah passage is speaking of it as a noise, warning them ahead of time that this is coming. We hear stories told by soldiers and what happened to people in the various areas where they did destruction. And now this is coming to their city in Nineveh. And destruction is going to happen to them. And so we see the, the noise of the chariots. And then we see the prancing horses. And those sounds of the prancing horses are as a little boy when dad is taking off his belt. And you know what's coming. I, I can remember my brother Dick and I when we were little guys in, in Tennessee. Uh, we knew. We had a whooping coming. Now, we didn't get spankings. We got whoopings, okay, with a bell. And we knew that as soon as Dad was home, we had it. That was it. So he and I, we really came up with some, a great idea. We went and hid all of his belts. We got in his closet. We found every belt he owned. and hid, I think we may have put it in the attic. I'm not sure where we put it, but we hid the belts. And yet our high five time was kind of premature, because when he walked in the door and he heard all the news, he just pulled the belt on that was around his pants. He didn't even look for those other belts. And, and, and part of the punishment for us was just knowing how stupid, you know. And, 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 and so uh, we got it pretty good that day. But nonetheless, that's the sound when you hear that belt coming off. A little boy scared to death. And that's the noises that's coming to Nineveh. The wheels were wooden planks joined together with pegs, wooden pegs. The, the Egyptians started using these lighter wheels, as a matter of fact, about uh, 1500 B.C., which is 900 years before our text. And, and they would use that because they could pull the chariots much faster, and that would make for military advantage. So as their technology of that day started to advance and uh, learning began to improve. They put in a blade into the wheels that was somewhat like a saw. And so 
they would ride up to the chariots of the others and that blade would cut their spokes. Sometimes it would cut the legs of the horses and, and, and bring them to an abrupt stop. And so they would use this. And so the loud beat of the wheels would make everyone aware that destruction was present and it was about to happen. I don't know if they do this today because I've not seen it in a while, but I can remember when I was young and you know, you got that bicycle, you blew up a balloon and tied it on there to the side so it would sound like a motorcycle. It didn't sound like a motorcycle, but you felt like you were cool, okay? But nonetheless, that sound was there, and it identified something as that kid is trying to sound like he's got a motorcycle. He's all revved up. Well, they're going to hear the sounding of the chariots of the wheels, the chariot wheels, and as they cut through those wooden wheels and the legs of horses, as they go nearby, that sound tells the people destruction is near. In Jeremiah chapter 47, verse 3, at the noise of the stamping of the hoofs of the strong horses and the rushing of the chariots and at the rumbling of the wheels the fathers shall not look back to their children for their feebleness of hands oh the bible is so right about the last days in second timothy chapter uh, three when it talks about without natural affection that is like family love And these here, the noise of battle coming near, they're not there to even try to protect their children. They're not there to deliver their children. They're running for their own lives through feebleness of hands. They go to try to save themselves. This is a picture of mankind in the end of days, especially in the period of Armageddon as they hear the sound of artillery and the tanks roar and the houses are rifled and the women ravished. As they hear those things and those things are going on, these men aren't standing back. They're fleeing for their own lives. These are well-trained horses. They move swiftly. They change direction so very quickly and they, they move so fast and, and they're strong. They'll be as jumping chariots in Nineveh's day, jumping through the holes that were caused when the walls collapsed, jumping bodies in the street. But in the day of the tribulation is when vehicles are running over bodies and knocking down the fences. Yes, the forward look as those chariots are seen in Joel chapter 2 and verse 5 where he says, like the noise of the chariots on the tops of mountains and they shall leap like the noise of a flame of fire that devoureth the stubble as strong people in battle array. So I'm talking about there in the Joel passage of, of war vehicles in that future day that jump on the mountains. Things such as helicopters, fighter jets, bombers, 
drones even. In Nahum's day, they didn't know what these things were. As in Joel's day, they just didn't know what those things were that they saw in the visions. There was no way to describe what these things were. So it uses language to try to help people understand. Hebrew, we're told, is a picturesque language that it will write to describe something. For example, uh, I know they didn't have jacks back in that day. But if you had jacks, if you wanted to describe the name of somebody as Jack, it'd say, they, they call him by that which jacks up a car. Jacks up a chariot, I guess. And it jacks it up, and it was Jack. And so that'd be, it would be describing the name. And by the way, in Old Hebrew, what? Those names always meant something. It said something about the individual. Uh, the thing that happened in, in Pittsburgh there last week, that was the naming of a baby. That's the naming of a child. And this represent whatever they was naming that child, uh, what they hoped for this child and uh, what this child should represent. And so, in like matter, as they're talking about these things, the things jumping on the mountains, chariots didn't jump up over mountains. They didn't do that. So what would it be? Looking ahead to the future day, that's exactly what those things would be. And so it uses that kind of a language to picture what they saw in their visions. Now, not only do we have the cause of the noise then, we also see the carnage of the noise in verse 3. The horseman lifteth up both the bright sword and the glittering spear, and there is a multitude of slain and a great number of carcasses, and there is none end of their corpses. They stumble upon their corpses. We're told that the horsemen lift up the bright sword and the glittering spear. Hebrew scholars, which I am not, but Hebrew scholars, uh, language scholars tell us that the idea of the flame of the sword and the lightning of the uh, spear, that is war language in a war scene in which you see total annihilation is the object. In Nineveh, one thinks of the flame. It is bright. It is red. A redness in the flames. What do they see? The horseman lifts up that sword. The brightness of the sun shines against it, and yet, on that sword is seen the red blood of the enemies, which would be their own people in Nineveh, being slain by the sword. And it's there, clearly it's open and everybody can see it. And the people of Nineveh know their men are slain. Their men lay dead in the street. As a lightning strike, the spear strikes through the body. And we have a similar scene. When you look ahead in prophecy to the tribulation hour. In Revelation chapter 14, verses 18 through 20. And another angel came out from the altar, which had the power over fire. 
and cried with a loud voice to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth. For her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth, and gathered the vine of the earth, and cast it to the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city, and the blood came out of the winepress even unto the horse's bridle by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. All the terror in the tribulation. When men see the face of Jesus Christ as he returns, but he's returning in wrath. The first time he came as a baby, was in a stable, the first, and when he enters Jerusalem there that last week, he comes riding on an ass. But oh, when he comes back, and he's on that great white steed and the armies of heaven following him. Fear rings throughout the earth as they, everyone sees. As a matter of fact, we read of that in Revelation chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. He says, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall well because of him. Isn't that interesting? They also which pierced him. That's 2,000 years ago. I believe that the portals of, of the lake of fire of hell, I believe that they're open. And I believe that those that were there, those that uh, cried for crucify him, crucify him, are suddenly seeing the king of kings as he comes back. Both those that are on the earth those that are in heaven looking down and those from hell looking up. They realize what is coming. And he says, all kindreds of the earth shall well because of him. Even so, amen. So be it, other words. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty you thought of the impact of those words? There are people that deny that Jesus was God come in the flesh. But which is, which was, his death, his burial, and which is to come, the resurrection and the return of Christ. And he's called the Almighty. Which is the Almighty. God come in the flesh. We call him Emmanuel at Christmas time, but he's Emmanuel all the time. He was God come in the flesh. And by the way, he never forsook that flesh. When he rose from the dead and his body is glorified, he will be in flesh the rest of eternity because we are joint heirs with Christ. We're going to have a new body fashioned like unto his glorious body, which is a great thing. But it's also a good thing to know that as a joint heir, as long as he exists, we exist. He is forever. The sacrifice of the cross was great. Having all of our sin placed upon him was great. But God is the spirit who spoke these worlds into existence. He was in the world and the world was made by him. He spoke them into existence as a spirit. He's the omniscient, omnipotent God. And yet, God the Son would confine himself to a body for all eternity. What kind of a sacrifice is that? 
It's the sacrifice of love. The sacrifice of love for you and me. That's his love. What a Savior that we have. As confident as the Ninevites were about their defense and their dwelling, they thought nobody could penetrate us and then boom, within a 24-hour period, they're destroyed. And so to the Antichrist and the armies of the world, they're there. Who can make war with him? As they speak of this Antichrist. And they worship him. And they worship the dragon. That is the devil that gave him his power and authority. And immediately, he and his false prophet will be cast into the lake of fire. And by the way, the Antichrist and the false prophet are actually human beings. Uh, Brother Jerry, I think several years ago, and I thought about it for a while, and I said, you know what, that's right. He was telling me that uh, in every era that you've had people, you've had the Hitlers, you had people before that, and all that seemed like they're rising up and great things were happening, and then all of a sudden they're defeated. Well, you see, Satan doesn't know in any era if this is the time. Only he knows the coming. So Satan tries to raise up men in each era. But when this Antichrist raises up and the false prophet, everybody will think there's no way they can be defeated. But Jesus comes again. And immediately, they're cast into that eternal lake of fire. The armies of the east are marching towards Israel at that day, as well as the other armies of the world. As confident as the Ninevites were about their defense, so are the armies of what they can do. The armies of the east have 200 million marching with them. They've already destroyed one-third of men on the way to this battle, we're told. Blood flows to the horses' bridles, we've already read. But beyond that, Jesus comes back. His throne is set up. And there is the judgment of nations. Joel, in chapter 3, verse 14, says, Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. That are those nations, those people left over from the tribulation. It says he'll put the goats on the left side and the sheep on his right side, speaking of people that that turned to Christ and those that did not. And the judgment takes place of the judgment of nations at the end of the tribulation. But that's still not the worst. For at the end of the tribulation, there starts a millennium. It's great for 1,000 years, the best years that man has ever had. But then that's followed with the great wine throne judgment. Those that, are, that died and went to that place called hell, they're brought back up again. 
all those that went through that millennium, that great period, the greatest period of man will ever know in this natural history of progress, of, of, of boy, I mean, they're still harvesting when it's time to plant again. And yet, men will rebel to end of that millennium one more time. Then there's a white throne. The books are open that has everything in their lives. Those that were in hell and were brought up as well as those that were alive at that time. They're all brought up. That were without Christ. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Oh, the cause of the noise and the carnage of the noise. That's what they have. You say, well, I'm saved. I'm saved. I don't have to worry about it. So what does that have been for me? For us, it means have care for the souls of men right now. Those that live God in Christ Jesus, they suffer persecution. Yeah, are you put aside? Maybe in some in their jobs they don't get that promotion. Maybe some in other areas they're, they're put off. Sometimes family cuts you off from communication. And so many other things go on. You stand for the Bible. You stand for uh, grace uh, through faith. And, and, and you also stand for uh, righteousness and standards of the God, Word of God. You're separated from this world. And they make fun of you and they attack you. And they, they'll have nothing to do with you. Oh, but don't lose perspective of it all. The prophecy of noise should stir a profound urgency. Just like the clock in the morning goes off and you're trying to reach over there in the dark and turn it off. Or a cell phone goes off in church. <laughs> you know. And, and you go through ten pockets trying to find that thing. Ladies jump in their purse. They walk over here. There's nothing there. Oh, man. Why didn't she throw that Kleenex away? And, you know, then you walk over here. Ah, oh, man, she left that tube of lipstick open. You're walking all across. You get to the other side of the pocketbook. Some ladies carry big pocketbooks. And finally, there's that cell phone. Now, it's gone off. And whether it went off and you got it in five seconds or you got it in 30 seconds, everybody's aware of it. Everybody is aware of it. Nobody's pointing a finger. They're just going... And they do that until their own goes off. Then it's a different story, okay? It was important that theirs go off. But, just like that sound, it ought to stir a profound urgency within each of us to care about God's glory. What God desires. His will. To do that, we need to get to know Him better. Know him through his word. Do more than just an obligatory reading of the word each day that becomes a routine. Instead, read his word to get to know his person, his will, his heart. Ask him when you read God's word to reveal himself, his very person to you. 
Ask for understanding of his word. Seek to know his voice in your heart that it will be more familiar than the voice of your spouse in your ear. And not that the voice of your spouse should decrease, but the voice of the Lord in your heart should increase. Put yourself out for the cause of Christ. If you're not willing to do that, all you have is a religion based on convenience instead of a loving, serving relationship with the Lord who provided a way to be saved from the wrath to come. As John the Baptist preached, he warned, who has warned you to flee the wrath to come? And we have that same message to call the people to repentance and faith in Christ Jesus. So put yourself out for the cause of Christ. There's a bus ministry. Yes, it requires door to door. It requires finding boys and girls and asking them to come, getting permission to parents. And that takes time. When I worked bus ministries back in the 60s and 70s, it didn't take much to get a bunch of kids on a bus. I mean, they didn't have all these things, the games and all the other things that are going for them. Boy, that was the only thing going. I could go out in an hour and, and get people riding on my bus. If we had under 40 on a day on the bus, I felt like we had a bad day. That's the way it was. Now you have to work twice as hard to get 20. But think of it this way. Just forget those boys and girls. My goodness. As bad as they were years ago, now it's worse because there's no discipline in their homes. There's no discipline in their schools. And they just go crazy and they do all these things. And if you try to correct it, uh, they're liable to throw you in jail. All this other stuff we get going in our hearts and minds as a reason not to do it. Just remember, that 8, 9, 10-year-old child that rides on the bus, if they don't get saved, if people don't go into those homes and try to reach those children... Those may be the ones that their blood is flowing at the battle of Armageddon. Christ could come back at any moment. You so say, getting a CDL and learning to do all of that, I don't care if a child burns in hell forever. I'm not going to go to do all that. You say, well, I'd never say that. If you don't do it, and God's called you to do it, that's exactly what you're saying. So, so I don't know that God's called me to do that. That's because you've never sought to see if he's calling you to do it. Separation from worldly pleasure and sin for the cause of Christ. Don't let cardinality be more important to you than serving God. You know, we have standards here that our school teachers, our deacons, and others have to go by as Sunday school teachers. But let me ask you something about this. Let's just say, I said all men have to wear one white sock and one black sock. Ladies, you can only wear a stocking on one leg. You say, that's crazy. Yeah, it really is crazy. 
Is there a biblical reason for it? Probably not, okay? Probably not. No, there's not. But God's called you here to preach or to teach or to do whatever you're doing. It's not a evil thing that they've said this is a standard. You say, I'm going to wear two socks. I'm going to wear hose the way they want me, uh, way that I should wear hose, the way that everybody else. I'm not going to do that. Then you've said that wearing two socks of the same color or wearing hose as everybody else's ladies would wear them is more important to you than fulfilling the call of God on your life even if there's some crazy standards that you think are just a little bit out there. Now, we don't have crazy standards, but they are becoming crazy, the biblical standards that we have to the world. They really are. There are those that say, well, you can smoke, you can drink, as long as you drink socially. Celebratory cigars. Why is it we're always applying grace to the flesh? instead of the spirit being freed from the power of the flesh? You see, that's the problem that exists today. What is more important to you? Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That is great. But don't forget verse 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained, that we should walk in them. After saved, there are works that God has for you to do. It says He's foreordained them. He's got a specific will for you. Here's the problem. Some are going to be standing at the judgment seat of Christ. I called you to the mission field. I called you to work on missions. I called you to do this. I called you to do that. And you say, I didn't know. If I'd known, I'd done it. You say, you didn't seek to know. You didn't seek it with your heart. God reveals that to you, you'll cast it as a pearl before swine, because the call of God is a pearl. And you refuse that call. And so what I'm saying is that when you come to Him, you seek to know Him and you seek to do His will, and it's all based on love. You say, My care and love for God and His person. How do I fulfill His desire? Well, know what His desires are. 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4. God who would have all men to be saved. Not some men, not elected men, all men. He'd have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, you can either call God a liar on that or not, but that's what His Word says and He doesn't lie. So, His desire, if it's for all men to be saved, we ought to witness 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slack concerning His promises. Some men count slackness, but as long as suffering to us word, not willing that any should perish. That's His will, but that all should come to repentance. Uh, Revelation 22, 17, and the bride. Now, He speaks to the Spirit, the Lord, but the bride, the church, says, come. You are the church. And God is wanting us to call others, the lost, to salvation. Will everybody get saved? Will we reach 50%, 80%, 
uh, Brother Gary goes out there, I think he gets about 1% at best on a good day. But that's 1% less that's going to hell. 1% less that's going to hell. Don't allow the fear of man to be greater than the fear of God. You see that new believer, take them under your wing and make them disciples of Christ as well. The time is short. The noise is sounding around the world. It's about to come, and the rapture will take place. Be a winner in that when he comes and he calls us home, we are found faithful. Faithful. It's required. Let's be faithful. Let's bow our heads, please.